Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. This series features real conversations with real experts, real parents, and real educators, so families can get the real behind-the-scenes story on what's happening in education. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack that tell you everything that's happening at their school. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. I'm your co-host, Lawanda Tony, Director of Strategic Communications at National PTA. And I'm Helen Westmoreland, Director of Family Engagement at National PTA. This week, we're tackling a topic that many families may be wondering about. What in the world is going on in my child's brain? What is my kid thinking? Why on earth are they doing what they're doing? Helen, I've been wondering about this a lot myself lately, especially now that I'm home with my seven-year-old. Now, don't get me wrong. I love spending this extra time with my child and my family. But this pandemic has allowed me to really sit down with my son and get to learn him and also kind of how his brain works. That's right. There's no better time than now to uncover how our children's brains are developing and the science behind it all. Families are now switching gears to various forms of homeschooling, crisis schooling, distance learning, putting their kids in other people's care so they can go to work. And we found that people are asking, what's developmentally appropriate? What should my child be doing if they're not in school? Today, Dr. Brandy Kenner is going to help us unpack all of this. Dr. Kenner is a senior consultant at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, where she has also served as the Director of Research and Implementation. Previously, Dr. Kenner was the Chief of Research, Innovation, and Learning at the Atlanta Speech School. She's also the founder of the Globe Academy, a dual-language charter school in Georgia. Dr. Kenner's areas of expertise include cognitive development, language and literacy acquisition, and social-emotional learning and literacy. She earned her PhD in psychology, cognition, and development from Emory University. She is also a mother of three. Dr. Kenner, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we wanted to get started learning a little bit about you. What makes you so passionate about the science of learning? Sure. So as you mentioned earlier in my intro, I have transitioned through many roles, beginning with a classroom teacher in elementary and middle school settings. And I taught both general ed and special education. And then I went on to found schools and programs and have been a nonprofit executive. And then ultimately, my research interests transitioned me out of educational psychology and special education into cognitive and developmental psychology. I'm really passionate about the science of learning because it's one of the fields that allows us to really shine light on some critical solutions to issues that we're facing in the education sector broadly. What I learned throughout my training and career is that often folks in the education space are not talking to those in the human development and learning spaces and vice versa. If we can kind of combine the worlds of 
basic science and human development and learning with all of the richness of educational practice and intervention and all the great work that's going on in that camp as well, then we really can find some solid solutions to a lot of the issues we're facing. Dr. Kenner, you mentioned educational issues. Can you explore that a little bit more? What do you mean when you say educational issues that we're facing? Sure. So I think broadly about systemic issues that we all know we face as a country around equity and access to resources and all of that. But also, if we go more granular in terms of just educational practice, there is a huge research to practice lag, as I mentioned. And one really good example is if we look at the literacy space, which I'm very passionate about. Language and literacy is one of my primary research areas. And we see huge lags and disconnects in the length of time that the science of reading and how we construct a reading brain has been known and accessible to scientific and academic communities, but not so much so in educational practice. And there are a variety of factors that I think get in the way of this from things that are outside of schools control to just lack of understanding and teaching at the level of teacher prep programs and on and on. But those research to practice lags really impact every aspect of the educational system. We have the vaccine, so to speak, for eradicating illiteracy. It's been around for years, but unfortunately, it's often distributed by race, ethnicity, and zip code, and not applied equitably or accessed equitably throughout our country. And so we see huge gaps in our NAEP reading scores, for example, with only 36% of children at fourth grade reading proficiently. And then those statistics get even more grim if we break down subpopulations like students of color or those who receive free and reduced lunch or English language learners. It's just a huge issue. And from my lens, understanding both the educational world and the science of learning and development worlds, I really see huge promise in terms of connecting those two worlds and giving educators access to the science so that it can be applied in real time. So it sounds like there's some mismatch between what we know about how a kid learned to read and how they're actually being Todd, you also mentioned that one of your areas of expertise is language acquisition. And we -hmm. were fortunate last season to have Dr. Lorena Mancilla do an episode with us in Spanish about ESL services and how families can navigate that. I'm very passionate about that too. We're raising our daughter bilingually at home. Could you give us a little bit of insight on that too? What's going on in kids' brains as they're learning new languages and what should you then see in the classroom? Absolutely. I'm also very passionate about this area and hence the dual language immersion school that I started years ago. But one of the things that is also very exciting about second language learning is that is another cognitive skill, so to speak, that we know actually obliterates the gaps that we see in literacy acquisition with socioeconomic status as a factor. So when you put children of all socioeconomic backgrounds in a dual language immersion setting or a setting in which they're learning multiple or two languages, 
then we see those effects of socioeconomic status disappear on literacy acquisition. And part of what's happening is that when children are learning more than one language, especially at an early age, which is really critical for it to happen early in development, their brains start forming different what are called lexicons, which is kind of where we hold the vocabulary and language and words of different languages and meaning. When that happens, you're exercising a lot of flexibility or plasticity in the brain. And we know that typically children who are in dual language settings have higher IQs than their monolingual peers. And they also tend to just see the world through much more diverse lenses, which makes sense if you think about the fact that there are words and phrases and expressions that exist in some languages that don't even exist in other languages. And so it really allows children from an early age to understand difference and really be able to empathize with others and their experiences and how they're seeing the world, because language is such a huge part of how we perceive the world around us. I know that everyone is homeschooling, crisis schooling, distance learning right now. But as we think about the future and we think about our kids returning back to school, what can parents do to be advocates for the science of learning in their communities? The first part of that is parents having an understanding of the science of learning themselves and They don't have to go out and get a PhD or go to grad school to understand there's some very basic tenets around whole child development and what we know is good for learners. So, for example, we could turn to theories like social cognitive theory, which tell us that learning happens in a context of social interactions and experiences with others and the environment around us. And so that puts a huge responsibility on the adults in that child's immediate ecosystem, whether it be family, schools, community, etc., having an understanding even of the social nature of learning and how every moment is truly a learning opportunity. And again, going back to the language piece, leveraging every moment to push in tier two and rich vocabulary and ask those really good open-ended questions that are going to provoke critical thinking and exercise our executive function skills around planning and executing and all of that are some very simple things. And I think that the more that families become aware of what good learning should look like, then they can advocate more in their schools and systems around the type of pedagogical norms that they want to see and expect and the leadership styles that are going to support teachers and being able to act upon those pedagogical stances. That's helpful. Could you elaborate a little, Dr. Kenner, on what those practices do look like, whether it's at home, as many parents are home now, trying to figure out how to keep their kids engaged in something aside from all the work they're trying to do. Yes. Like if you could boil it down to two or three things, we should be doing more of this and less of this, right? If we're really being responsive to what research shows is the way kids learn. Absolutely. That's such a good question. We should definitely be doing more talking and listening with our children. 
And that's what Jack Shankoff at the Harvard Center on the Developing Child refers to as those serve and return interactions where it's pretty much like a tennis match. Like I serve you the ball and you hit it back and it keeps going back and forth. And again, within that, there's all types of open-ended questions being asked that begin with how and why so that children have an opportunity to elaborate and don't just have to answer yes or no. That's one of the biggest non-resource gifts that we could give our kids right now, especially with everything that's going on around the Mm COVID-19 crisis and really helping them process their emotions. I mean, there are huge opportunities for conversations that will land in empathy and asking them things like, how do you think children are feeling right now who have parents who are in the medical Mm -hmm. field or who have lost a loved one to COVID and allowing them to kind of process with you as an adult model again, and maybe even doing some of your own thinking and thinking aloud with them around how you're feeling about what's going on. Of course, in developmentally appropriate ways, we don't want to scare and depress our children, but the reality is they're being bombarded by the media and everything around them. So we want to address it in healthy ways. I know that would be helpful for a lot of parents right now, especially during this time and after. Speaking of COVID, how Mm -hmm. does stress affect the brain, especially in children? That is such a good question. Broadly, stress impacts each of our brains in the same way in terms of the areas of the brain that it's impacting. But what we know is in children, it can have much more damaging effects because the brain is still so malleable and it's still going through Mm -hmm. these critical periods of development. And it actually can start impacting as early as utero. Hormones that are produced by stress are very damaging to our bodies and to our brains. And particularly, Stress is hitting the prefrontal cortex, which is known as our thinking center and is responsible for all that executive functioning and our decision making and planning, etc. And then also there's the anterior cingulate cortex, which we commonly call the emotion regulation center. If you think about children and them not already being in a place where they don't necessarily have the same hold on their emotions that an adult can have. This is why we might see some of the acting out behaviors or internalizing because the other thing that is impacted is our amygdala in the brain, which is kind of the fear center. And that's when we see the fight or flight responses. And the reality is regardless of whether the behavior we're exhibiting is fight or flight, neither response allows the brain to be open to learning and reasoning. And in fact, all learning will start shutting down when we're in those modes. And it's pretty much these behaviors of either externalizing and acting out or really internalizing and shutting down. Stress has a huge impact. And I think we're all adults and children experiencing a great deal of stress, even from the unknown, let alone those who are being impacted directly by this disease. It's really important that we're gentle with each other, with our children, with each other, with our colleagues, because we're all functioning in a space of many traumas right now from day to day, Mm -hmm. even the uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen from day to day is a traumatic experience in of itself, because as humans, we like patterns and prediction and to be able to have some sense of control around our little worlds around us. Mm. I can really identify with that because I think that 
when you get in that survival mode, it's really hard to actually snap out of it, even as an adult. And you, you know, Mm -hmm. could you give our listeners a little bit (laughs) of advice? If you see your child going into that survival mode, whether that's throwing a tantrum or fighting or acting out or avoiding, Mm -hmm. I think you were talking about, what are some different things as parents Mm -hmm. you can do to help them get back in a reasoning, learning mode? There are differences, obviously, in terms of developmentally where your child is. But in general, some of the things that work across the board is letting it go and not getting in power struggles. I think sometimes as parents, we want to solve it right then and make Mm -hmm. it be done. And sometimes we just have to let it go and do some planned ignoring where it's not ignoring in a malicious sense, but just saying, okay, my little one or big one needs some space and time right now. And I'm just going to ignore this tantrum and let it go. And it's okay to say things like, you're not going to disrupt the rest of the family and act out and be mean to everyone else. So you need to take some time, go to your room and calm down. And we'll talk about this later kind of thing with an older kid. And in more developmentally appropriate ways with your little ones, you can also say, okay, I'm going to let you kick it out. And we'll talk about this when you're ready. But not good to get in power struggles with kids because what happens is you just keep escalating and they'll escalate and then you escalate and they escalate and, they usually and it win. just keeps going, becomes mean. a battle of the wills. <laughs> they, they really do because we get tired and break down. And so at this point, it's really good to acknowledge, okay, they're probably going through their own many stresses right now. They're having to adapt to a whole new way of learning and being right now in their day to day during the week. And we're all trying to adjust. And so the same ways that adults are feeling uncomfortable and needing to adjust children are too. I mean, the good thing is that children are very resilient in general. Mm -hmm. The more we can allow those natural ebbs and flows to work within them and not get into the power struggles of how they go about it, the better. But at the same time, it is good to have boundaries and structures and That's some of the things that can help at home is creating schedules and routines and many structures throughout your day, even if it's we're going to eat lunch at the same time every day and we're going to have this as part of bedtime routine every night or something that you do as a family every evening, just something to give that sense of predictability and structure during a time that's so unpredictable and unsure also helps to alleviate a lot of stress in kids. That's really good, Dr. Kenner. I think I need you at my house to be the voice of reason (laughs) for certain situations. Let me tell you, we are all in this together. I have three children of my own and a big blended family with three other children. And so it's much easier when you're talking to others than when you're in your own house. We all struggle with it. Trust me. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about what activities can families do to help our children exercise their brains while we're home, outside of schoolwork, but not really letting them know that we're kind of exercising their brains. What should we do? So CZI has actually compiled a huge resource bank from experts and partners and practitioners all throughout our connections. And 
The link can be found at the CZI website, which is chanzuckerberg.com. And then if you go up to the top of the main website, there's a newsroom link in the top banner. This is a bank of all types of resources, both technology and non-technology based, which is really important during these times because we know that there are about 12 million or so children who don't have access to broadband right now at a time where remote learning is kind of essential. Mm -hmm. So we also just released a big grant to try to alleviate some of that load and burden around the lack of access to internet. The grant was given to Education Superhighway to partner with schools and districts, and they're going to be providing strategies for extending internet connectivity to students from underserved communities who need access for distance learning due to the COVID-19 related closures. And then the other thing, in addition to those activities and resources, I kind of mentioned earlier, but I can't impress enough the importance of just really leveraging this opportunity to push in those language interactions and taking time to read and asking those open-ended questions and really provoking that critical thinking right now, because we just want to keep our children's brains sharp and engaged and active throughout the day. I think it's also important to think about physical activity because we know it's so important to keep oxygen Mm -hmm. and blood flowing. And so even if you don't have a huge backyard, just doing stuff in the house like a dance contest or jumping rope or anything to keep them active and creative, not being afraid to lay out some random materials and make some abstract art project or something. Because to your point, it's not just about academics. And especially right now, there's almost irony in there being something like the COVID-19 crisis to really force people to focus on what's important and what really does develop the whole child when you strip away all the high stakes testing and all of the things that we're not going to be able to lean on in the coming months. What's left is that whole child and what they really need. Yeah. I agree. That's great. Thank you. Dr. Kenner, we want to thank you again for making time for us today and for shining some light on all of what's going on behind the scenes and our kids' brains in this crazy time, but in general, too. And I know we've talked about a lot, so we want to give you one last opportunity. If parents could walk away with one big takeaway from today's conversation, what's the big thing that they can start applying today? I would say for them to take away that they really are one of their child's most important teachers, and especially at a time right now. And I don't mean teacher in terms of reading, writing, and arithmetic, although those things are very important. But in terms of the time that we're all being given to really develop a whole child and be at home with our children for the most part, except for, unfortunately, those who are more essential workers and are working crazy shifts. But whoever children are at home with, whether it's parents, other loved ones, just the importance of knowing that we are the models right now and that everything we're doing, they're watching and observing and learning from us. And so if we can go into our days and nights with intentionality set up some good routines and norms and expectations, have rich conversations throughout the day. We will all come out on the other side of this probably 
pulling out skills and developing our children in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise had an opportunity to do in the traditional ways in which school was rolling out prior to this crisis. Thank you. Those are great parting words of inspiration. Are there any other resources you want to be sure to highlight for parents that they can check out, including your own social media handles if they want to follow you to learn more? Sure. So my website for the organization through which I consult is called Choice Filled Lives. And the website is just choicefilledlives.org. And then there is also a really good free resource of learning activities with the Atlanta Speech School, which is the organization where I served as chief of research and innovation for many years. There's a website called the Cox Campus, and they have recently launched actually a free and universally accessible preschool program where the teachers of the preschool and the Rollins Center for Language and Literacy, which is their professional learning arm is having daily preschool classes and interactions and modeling some of the many literacy and language-based strategies that are out there. So that's another really good resource in terms of tangible strategies and activities that parents can tap into, particularly for the preschool through third, fourth grade groups. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Kenner, for sharing your resources and sharing your time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That wraps up today's episode. But before you go, be sure to check out our website, notesfromthebackpack.com, and follow our hashtag BackpackNotes to stay in the know. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpacknotes. Notes.